If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. You're listening to The Dialogue on Reality Check Radio with Diwa De Boer, where we explore politics, power, and culture. I'm joined by Kaiden and Origin, who are contributors to the Right Minds Project, and they're some of the people who I sit around the virtual fireplace with to talk politics, and they are also both good friends of mine. A big story last week was the two-hour-long interview with Tucker Carlson and Vladimir Putin, and I've brought them on here to talk about that and their thoughts on it. Welcome to the show, Kaiden. Uh, good day. It's a momentous occasion. It's good to be here. And welcome to the show, Origin. Good day, Reality Check Radio listeners and Diwa and Kaiden. Nice to be here. So my first thoughts on the interview, which I found very, very interesting, especially as someone who doesn't worry too much about the border disputes on the other side of the world. My main real interest has always been in a solution that stops the killing and the loss of life. Uh, And unfortunately, we seem to be very much in a worst case situation with a a, a long war, high casualties on both sides, but especially on, on the Ukrainian side. And Vladimir Putin seemed fairly comfortable with his position in the war. I think with his negotiating position, he uh, was you know, happy happy to come to the table effectively, uh, but also happy to carry on with the war to achieve uh, what he sees to be his objectives. So, Kaiden, what was your first impression of this interview? It's good to hear someone so intelligent for once. You know, our world leaders don't have nearly the same grasp of, of history. And, um, well, it, you don't even need to really understand the, the history. He, he just he uses his grasp of history to justify his own national sovereignty and you know he has confidence in his own civilization and kind of you don't see that anymore from from our, our own leaders are too busy with you know lgbt rights and diversity and so on to justify the continuation of their own nations do you think president biden in america could handle an interview like that no i mean he can't even remember when his son died so you know I don't have much hope there. It's uh, absolutely, yeah, just a, a very unserious situation we find ourselves in in the West at the moment. Yeah, clown world. <laughs> it's a yeah, clown world moment. And Origin, what uh, were your impressions? Yes, I, I agree with Kaiden. I think uh, Putin is a man who's deep in history. Um, but we just touched on diversity before, and a lot of Putin's interview sort of uh, tried to capture the spirit of the Russian people. He talked about something that was just deeper and broader than cultural lines. And for me, that was the most interesting thing because although, you know, Tucker Carlson is essentially a, a paleocon, he's definitely not of the same understanding um, in terms of the, the spiritual depths of the Russian people that, that sort of Putin was trying to communicate. So for me, that was, that was more interesting than, than, than the history lesson. It was something that I've touched on 
earlier on in the show in my interview with William McGimsey was sort of a, a cultural malaise, a, a, a complete lack of meaning in the West. And you're listening to Vladimir Putin being interviewed, he seems to have absolutely none of that. No, no spiritual malaise, no lack of meaning. He knows exactly what he wants. He knows exactly what he wants for his nation, and he's willing to do absolutely anything to achieve it. Indeed, they still they still look in terms of national interest, and yeah, they know what their people are. They know who they are. Therefore, they can clearly define who is friend and who is enemy at whatever point in in time. And I mean, I'll shill Clash of Civilizations by Sam Huntington which I suppose is somewhat mainstream in this sort of international relations audience. But on the other hand, maybe a lot of uh, listeners aren't aware of it. There's a book in response to this end of history idea of Francis Fukuyama that, you know, the end of history means that world will adopt a liberal democracy. And this was a, a response to that and saying that instead of the Cold War ending and, you know, liberal democracy winning, that the world will fracture into different civilizations and, and what really matters is ultimately who do you who who do you think you are who do you know who you are sort of the, the root question of philosophy so I, I know that sounds a bit abstract but putin has a grasp of that whereas the americans and many of the european nations don't quite yeah they don't yeah they think they are well we are at the end of history and i think putin's speech was a rejection of that and the rejection yes. of, of the notion of western liberalism which was extremely refreshing. And he sort of spoke to a multipolar world, which I think is probably the best way forward. And I think it is evidence uh, in the Russian people. They're united by, obviously, the Russian language, but it, the Russian language traverses many cultures throughout the former Soviet and Russian Empire territories. And they are sort of united in their common bond in that respect um, through that shared history. And uh, and for them, you know, history hasn't ended. It's a, the eternal struggle, the destiny of the of the Russian people. Yes, and you could to give a quick overview of Putin's interview, the subjects that were covered, just in case there are those in the audience who you know, haven't listened to the interview, or maybe you've only heard what's being reported in mainstream news about the interview. He spent basically the first thirty minutes giving a history of Russia. And Ukraine, he went back to uh, the ninth century. He, he, <laughs> I love the introduction. The, he, he starts talking about the ninth century, and Tucker is sort of, well, what does this have to do with with what we're doing? And what does it have, have to do with the invasion of Ukraine? He called it filibustering. <laughs> and just if, and so, and Putin, of course. Well, I want to have a serious conversation. We're we having a serious conversation, and then he just goes on for thirty minutes about this history. Then they talk about NATO expansion. Uh, various aspects of NATO for for 10 minutes or so, 20 minutes, they go on. They speak about the sources of the conflict, what triggered the conflict. Tucker asked about if a peaceful solution could be reached, how willing was Putin to negotiate. He asked him who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. He asked questions about reestablishing communications with the United States. And then, of course, about whether he thought Zelensky was actually in charge of Ukraine or the situation, or is it actually... Joe Biden, who's calling the shots, or you know, the people behind Joe Biden who are calling the shots. And he closed off with some questions about Elon Musk, artificial intelligence, and also uh, an imprisoned American journalist who's been imprisoned on, on espionage charges. So Tucker Carlson did cover a lot of ground. Uh, he was, I think he met his match, I think, in terms of an interview. He was very much caught off guard 
and you could tell they're both both very good at what they do. Now, Origin, you were referring to the world being sort of split in two as well. Uh, Putin actually referred to that, but the, uh, as he, he likes to talk about the world as one one head, and that the world has got a, a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere in his brain, and that yes. those hemispheres should actually be connected and work together properly, and that currently they've been disjoined, the, the brain has been split in two, which I've seen some people criticize as giving kind of a, a globalist message. Is Vladimir Putin a secret globalist because he talks about the need for the world to be united and interconnected? Yeah, I, I mean, people may take that reading of it. I, I think it sort of his perspective probably stems from a more pro-Russian standpoint but in a multipolar framework. And I suppose it's good to sort of talk about the origins of the multipolar theory. Um, it sort of comes about by way of Alexander Dugin, who's a, a prominent Russian political philosopher, kind of known for his controversial geopolitical theories. And he advocates for essentially what's known as an Eurasianist vision that opposes Western liberalism, essentially. And uh, in the West, at least, this man known as Alexander Dugan has been sometimes referred to as uh, Putin's brain, um, <laughs> which I think is really quite amusing. There's, that's you know it's a little bit speculative. There's no real hard evidence to say that Dugan has a direct line to uh, Vladimir Putin. But what I did find... Interesting, I, I was talking about it before, was that, and, and you mentioned it as well, you know, discussing the, the, the course of the interview, was the emphasis on the history of the Russian people and that appeal, uh, because I think essentially the, the speech itself or the interview itself was aimed directly at the Russian people. He, you know, he was giving his reasons. He was giving his reasons that, no, there wasn't a country such as Ukraine. It's a fiction they are Russian people, the Russian-speaking people, and we're we're united in one brotherly bond. You referenced obviously his view that Ukraine is a, a fiction. Now we here are fairly familiar with our history. Obviously, there is or has been have been several iterations of Ukrainian nationalism in the last two hundred years or so. Something he mentioned. In his speech, which was interesting, of course, I think is Ukrainian nationalism has been fairly dependent on German support. I was in, in World War One. You had an independent Ukraine for a short period of time. I remember reading about it in General Peter Wrangel's memoir, Always with Honor. Great book. Um, he was the last general of the White Russians who uh, led the uh, the long defeat against the the communists. He was actually offered a position in an in independent Ukraine. But he himself wrote, he said, as soon as the German money dries up, Ukraine will collapse. And that was that was 100 years ago. And it's so strange to be sitting here in a similar situation now where Ukrainian nationalism is largely, again, dependent on German and American money. But is there a place for Ukrainian nationalism? Obviously, you know, we support the autonomy and independence of people, people's right to their homelands and so on. Mm. Uh, is he wrong when he, is he, is he actually wrong when he says that there's no Ukrainian people or argues that they shouldn't be allowed to leave the Russian sphere of influence? 
Well, I think you can look to, say, like Chechnya, for instance. So Chechnya is, has a lot of autonomy within the Russian state, and it has its own defined borders and jurisdictions and also uh, its own uh, languages um, preserved and, and way of life. It's an Islamic uh, jurisdiction. And they obviously there was you know the civil war during the 1990s and early 2000s, but they have reached a, a mutual agreement between them that they can quite happily coexist peacefully, and that 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 same influence is, is found throughout all the different peoples of the the Russian state. For example, like the Tatars are another quite predominant sort of minority in the Russian state, and they've been able to preserve their cultures and their traditions within the the Russian sphere. So obviously, I understand there's a difference between sovereignty and preservation of culture, but it seems to have been able to weather the storm of both, you know, Soviet Russia and obviously the post-Cold War Russia, well, both the Tatars and the Chechnyans. Mm, that's a very good point in you know seeing the the destructive nature of the Soviet system of the communist system that Russia's policy of allowing cultural autonomy is, seems to have have survived and, and mm. whether the storm of communism quite well I, I would uh, say though, I would say just as a quick note that I think the concern is not particularly Ukrainian nationalism but what Putin sees and it, it could well be a ruse of Nazism uh, ascendant and and Ukraine and people scoff at that by saying, "Well, Zelensky is ethnically Jewish," which is true, but his government is still funding Azov battalion types who cause mm-hmm. havoc along Russian lines. Or, well, obviously, most of that has, has ended with the capture of Bakhmut. Mm-hmm. Um, something Putin actually uh, mentioned was that is exactly what Putin mentioned. Mm-hmm. Oh, hang on, give me, a, give me a sec. It's it's just interesting that. That's the sort of pause for Russian, one pause that he sees for Russian aggression. And it really does stick in the sort of post-war, people want to say, academic agent comes up, came up with the term uh, boomer truth regime of post-war politics, not just for us. We, we aren't just affected by it with what we understand to be World War II, but so is Russia. And yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's excellent. I had a point here about that, which I may as well get into now. Uh, I had a, I coined a term while I was thinking, how do we discuss this? And I t- turned to term the coin, uh, coin, coin to the term Godwin's War. Obviously, we have uh, Godwin's Law on the mm-hmm. internet, which is a basically for those who have never heard of Godwin's Law, it basically is that as the longer a conversation on the internet goes on for, the probability of Hitler being invoked reaches one. So, so effectively, you're always guaranteed to invoke Hitler at some point in a conversation because we live in this post-war era. But this particular war very much is a case of everything being Hitler. You look at Putin's justification, it's because there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine. You look at many Western arguments against fighting back, it's because, well, Putin's the next Hitler. Right? The, the term Putler was coined as... as I think it was intended to be serious quite early on, but it turned into a bit of a joke. But that was kind of it. The justification for war in the post-war era has to be, or, or often people try to make it a case of, well, we're, if we're fighting Nazis, that's a good thing because it's the only thing that you're allowed to fight, the, only, the ultimate evil. So if you can fight the ultimate evil, well, then your cause is just. And so is this just a case of them invoking or trying to look for Nazis under the bed? On, on both sides here, or is there like is there really something genuine to it? Obviously, 
many of the boomers and Putin included, uh, being a boomer, they genuinely believe it. But there are also other people involved in the war. I wonder who, uh, you know, do they really believe that? It seems to me to be very far, far fetched. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a sort of a long term historical trend to to label everything as either Hitler and of course you go far back enough, and it was people labeling you know the everything the great Satan. I was reading parts of Huntington's Clash of Civilizations earlier, and he was talking about how they called the Western world called Peter the Great Satan, like the great Satan. This is a sort of a long term historical trend to justify, if not war, aggression against rival powers. And so whether or not it's this sort of justification for Russian involvement in, U- in, U- Russian involvement in Ukraine really is hinged on uh, Nazism or not is, I mean, I don't know. It's, it really isn't that. Well, yeah, we, can, we no. can look to the fact that, I mean, there's obviously support for Bandera, who was the World mm. War II figure, and there is the Azov Battalion. But, I mean, look, that's... Yeah. You know, in the grand scheme of the current mm-hmm. present Ukrainian military is not like a great, huge well, component of it. That's no, right. No. I mean, if you look at Bandera, they um, didn't the Ukrainian government actually they they sort of venerated him ten or twelve years back, and then they because of the international outcry, they re- completely revoked all honors to Bandera. So there's a sort of they've got a very shaky relationship with their sort of national uh, national socialist past. That they haven't really gotten rid of. Well, they probably really want to appeal to folks like Bandera and who support Bandera because they're going to fight the hardest. Because the rest of the Ukrainians are just basically fighting for Western liberalism, uh, which is not something you really want to die for. And I mean, that's indicative of the falling military enlistment rates in the uh, the West. So to have a, a folk hero like Bandera, Bandera is probably a useful adjunct for both sides, for both the Russians and the Ukrainians for different reasons. That's a, a very good point. I was just thinking about Germany. So obviously Germany has similar problems. You often see action against Germany's nationalist movements and so on are, you know, they're attacked on that basis. Even the Alternative for Germany, which is a fairly large party in the German parliament, often gets into some kind of controversy you know, in some way related to uh, Nazism, because like, obviously that is an actual genuine part of German's history. And at some point, if it's part of your history, you do have to reckon with it in some way. And it seems like the, the Ukrainians had some kind of genuine struggle with that, that perhaps has, has mostly been exploited by Putin simply because it's available to exploit. I really see his arguments from history, especially looking back when he's quoting the past. I almost think that he's thinking about a man sitting in his, in his place in 500 years, looking back, uh, saying, you know, did Vladimir Putin leave Russia stronger? Right? Will people think, look back at him and say, he strengthened the, the Russian people, he strengthened the Russian nation. And he referred to the rise and fall of empires later on when Tucker asked him about spiritual forces, you know, he said, do you believe that spiritual forces are driving the nations? And he basically said, no, no, he didn't. And I thought initially I thought that was a little bit odd, but then when I thought about it, I thought maybe he's, he doesn't see it as an act of spiritual involvement, but more as a facet of natural law that God has put the, the times and places of empires already in, into place. And so he sees this more as a, uh, in, in a sense, a passive movement where it is sometimes time for an empire to rise and sometimes time for one to fall. And he's looking to make his mark on history using the, those natural mechanisms. Yeah, and, and that, and it's 
it's an ontological conflict between East and West, and it sort of goes beyond geopolitical rivalry. I mean, essentially, the West embodies the values of rationalism, individualism, uh, materialism stemming from the Enlightenment and modernity, and uh, Eastern civilizations like Russia just represent, at an ontological level, so at a level of being, they represent spirituality, collectivism, and traditionalism, and so, yeah, in a way, there doesn't have to be an active force of God's will playing out, but at the level of being and at the natural law, things just will play out as as they are embodied. I, I might beg to differ in that there's also an element of great man of history here where, as Dee was said, it's Putin can look back at him, you know, he, he can think of someone 500 years from now and and, and think, well, what did Vladimir Putin do in my situation? And with the Russians, a sort of strong man, I mean, that's what Stalin was, his name literally meant was, was strong man, this sort of paternalist, uh, strong man leader ruling Russia and, and commanding Russia, being the will of Russia, that has been something that's defined them as a sort of a monolithic entity as opposed to the West, where there are many different minds, many different nations. Well, I, I, I would object to that. I'd say that the West promotes positively a linear progressive view of history and seeks total global dominance through imperialism and cultural hegemony whereas you know whether there is dugan's influence in this or not you know russia sort of embodies more of a, a reawakening of the eurasian consciousness and like a multipolar world uh, order to counter western universalism it's it's the west that become the universal uh hegemon here not, not places like Russia. West is best. That's that was always the the saying. It, but it's been quite successful, though, wouldn't you say? Origin. We have up until this point marched on as as a dominant power in the West, as a you know a globe spanning power from the British Empire through to American hegemony. You know, even to this day, in its decayed, decrepit state, with a senile man as president and thirty trillion dollars of debt. American cultural power and American military power still reigns supreme. And we may say, wow, it looks weak and decrepit, but it certainly hasn't yet collapsed. And, and uh, you know, that some people, and I've certainly heard those people theorize that there can be some recovery, there will be some continuation, much like, like uh, the, you know, the Roman Empire went through a couple of, of cycles over hundreds, well, hundreds well, of years where it actually got into a very decrepit state and then grew back again. Yes. Well, uh, Putin uh, referred to it in the interview. He said, you're looking at history. um, What did he say? The collapse is going to happen much faster. Mm, That's a theory, certainly, that the collapse could just happen quickly. Yeah. I I think that's a bad gamble uh, for someone to take, that that some are, okay, well, you know, we're going to gamble everything on America collapsing in the next 20 years. Well, uh, it's, when it could be, it could be two hundred years. What well, you're talking about before, like haven't we done well in the West? Yeah, sure, materially we've done well, and I think what the learning that the Russians received from the Soviet experiment was the annihilation of tradition and and the spirit and the spiritual aspects of our existence. And I think we were doing it much in the same way in the West, but we're just doing it as opposed to direct overt pressure we're just doing it as in a form of materialist forms and and nihilism and that's what's going to lead to our collapse and i i I mentioned it before with the uh, falling enlistment rates 
then there's been like a lot of propaganda drives around Britain, for instance. Uh, Australia has had a few different ad campaigns, uh, different ad campaigns in the Americas where they've moved away from, say, diversity and equity inclusion um, adverts to showing, say, white guys, you know, jumping out of airplanes again. And they're trying to appeal to that um, that old spirit and the old way of being in Western times, which was strong, which was virile, which was masculine, which could combat the entire world. And I, I just don't think we have that anymore. And I think it's a necessary component if you want to maintain a, like a global hegemonic empire. And uh, I think it will collapse and we're probably better to look at a multipolar world order where people can just live in peace and respect their own customs and not have this drive towards having this uh, certain ideology in every single corner of the globe, which is, you know, pernicious and that just wipes out unique and, and valuable cultures. I've got one last question for you, Kaiden, on this particular mm. subject. And obviously with Putin and I've seen that his interview is being played in Russian schools, which I think leans into the fact that I believe it was you who said that it was a speech to the Russian people. No, no, it was, uh, it was Arjun. So in that context, I'd like to think about, or I'd like to ask you about the way that the Russians are currently training their children to think about history. It's very different to how children in our schools are being trained to think about history. And how do you break out of that? You've obviously been reading a lot of books on civilization, on history. You've referred to a few of them already during our discussion here. Uh, how did you sort of break out of the, the mold from how you were taught to think at school? Or is, are things not really as bad at, at, at school as how we tend to talk about them? I didn't have a typical education. I did A-levels um, and we did modules on historiography. So, you know, we picked up on stuff like cyclical view of history, um, Brodel and the Law and Duray, which is the, the Annale school. So we had a bit more broad understanding. But from what I understand of something like NCEA, you're stuck in the paradigm of, you know, learn about Nazi Germany and Maori history and or New Zealand history, Springboks tour. And that's it. You don't really have this sort of uh, multiple layers, sort of four-dimensional view, how different historical theories competing with one another throughout time and their sort of political influences and their political impacts. You don't think about that at all in a standard history course, from what I understand, um, from what I was told at the time. And I think the way you break out of that is you simply teach kids a more holistic view of history not just focusing on your own but other people's and they're sort of you root it in a sense of who you are as a this is going to sound very liberal as, as someone standing outside of it all and you know at the same time i'm not saying that you you rid yourself of you know your own cultural upbringing and all that but i'm saying that you got to be able to to stand, I mean, was it Ranker who said this, right? You know, you got to stand outside of it all. Well, I, I disagree rambling. with you there. No, <laughs> I'm disagreeing <laughs> with you. you. You don't want to stand outside of it all. You want to be embodied. You want to live it. You want to be part of a, a vibrant and true culture. You're, you're talking about like a Cartesian view of world history. It's, ultimate, it's ultimately about seeing things as what they are for what about whether or not you see the truth of it all. Okay. It's not about, you know, your own personal grievances and biases is my point i think that's we're so focused on seeing the political presentism of history rather than seeing it as a again like 
something more holistic. Okay, fair point. Like more like an impartial judge rather than. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think to give a good illustration of this, it, it, well, from from the speech we're talking about, from the interview mm. we're talking about, the, the speech inside the interview. One of the things Putin referenced was Poland collaborating with, oh, yeah. and <laughs> this is of course funny. It's funny, but but you realize there's, there's three different points of view in that particular event. Obviously, you have a German view of what happened with Poland. You have the Polish view of what happened to Poland, and then you have the Russian view of what happened to Poland. And you need to you need to know what what yes. you know, those groups thought in order to make a bit of an impartial judgment on that particular point in history, because you can tell that he, Putin genuinely believes, you know, is. Yes. The, the Russian, he he has embodied the Russian side of that particular story. I, and I, I saw people calling him out for, for lying about Polish collaboration with Germany, but that is absolutely true. The Poles did collaborate with Germany to dismember Czechoslovakia mm. um, during the Munich Agreement. Yeah. They ended up receiving land, and I think there was what, an end in Slovakia that was the sort of yeah. vassal of the Germans. Yep. And, and that's and then, kind of about now because Poland is the great victim. Yeah, yeah, and then, and but then, obviously, Poland got dismembered. Uh, you know, and the USSR was involved there, and then the USSR got, you know, yeah, they all made one big mess of it. And of course, it's a good event that we can sort of stand outside of a little bit and look look into. And that that is often, but it is often the case in history that you have a number of different perspectives and a number of different people who are trying to hide different parts of history because they're embarrassed by it. Good example from an, an area, you know, a country near here. Um, I'm told um, if you go to Japan, for instance, you get some very interesting views of their history there. I was in Croatia a few years ago, and again, you get their history from you know the year '95 from the Croatian point of view. But you've got to take it as it is. It's their, <laughs> it's their history they experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you've just joined us, by the way, and you're confused as to what we're talking about. Uh, you're listening to the dialogue on RCR with Dewa de Boer, where we explore politics, power, and culture. Having a discussion here, uh, a little virtual fireside chat with Kaiden and Origin about the interview that Tucker Carlson did with Vladimir Putin. Uh, we've just gone over the different facets to the interview, especially the historical angles and, and very much the animating spirit as to uh, the animating spirit of Putin's rationales. I'd like to shift the conversation over just a little bit in this la latter half to his discussion of trade and economics. Uh, obviously, that was a big part of the interview. Tucker asked a lot about the power of the US dollar, uh, how Russia's trade has changed and how he believed it would affect uh, the rise of China. Because that seems to very much be, if you're trying to understand US foreign policy, it sort of seemed to be to try to contain China. And they thought they would break up Russia to contain China. And that that's fallen apart completely, obviously. And that may very well affect New Zealand in the future because we have China is our biggest trading partner, but America and Australia are, are our closest allies. So this creates an interesting geopolitical situation for New Zealand. Would you like to give us some of your, your thoughts and background on that, Kaiden? Well, uh, it's, it's interesting because this whole war has been given countries like China and Russia opportunities to insulate themselves from a, what is essentially a failing Western financial system. It's a sort of Keynesian model run wild. And that's not to say that Russia and China don't suffer from similar problems. If you look at China's uh, economy, you know, you had the evergreen crisis a few years ago that they managed to contain, but whether or not they can do in the future, it's yet to be seen. 
but how this affects us, I mean, you know, China trying to insulate themselves has led to some interesting diplomatic issues, like, I don't know if it's diplomatic, political issues, where they, for instance, have been stealing our kiwi fruit and planted in China in order to grow themselves in crops. I don't know if it's a thing where they're going to sell it onto the international market and kind of cut us out, but it does seem like a lot of the goods that they would want, they're starting to produce themselves. And of course, this comes into play with the US trade war of recent, you know, there's a chip ban ongoing right now where in order to try and curb the development and growth of the AI industry in in China, the Americans have effectively banned NVIDIA and AMD from selling chips there. So they're having to develop rapidly their own domestic market. In fact, that might end up being one of the largest industries for China in terms of growth compared to all the rest. So they're insulating themselves against us, uh, mainly due to this war in in Ukraine, Uh, us as in the West, not New Zealand specifically. And other nations, of course, following suit, you know, at least putting their hand up with interest in joining the BRICS. Um, I guess you could consider them the sort of EEC of the third world. So, yeah, I'll just pass it on to you. Thank you for a, a very brief overview there. Is there anything, Origin, that you'd like to add to, add to uh, a, an overview of the economic situation that you see developing out of this war? Well, the the BRICS situation can go only go up for them, really. I mean, more and more members are joining. Uh, I think it was mentioned in the, the Putin interview, they were talking about $33 trillion worth of American debt. And like Kaiden says, you know, we have our common, tra- well, common in terms of our heritage trading partners, Australia and America and the United Kingdom. Uh, it sort of strikes me, is foolish almost, you know, having given away like the common market. Was, was it called the common market, the, the trade we had with I, uh, England? I think it was them joining the common market in the in the European Union at the time. That's right. That's the, and I can't remember what we called our agreements with them, but obviously they had the Commonwealth agreements that were that, that had to be dismantled yeah. in order for them to join the European market. And it's interesting, it seems that despite the amount of uh, money that we make from China, despite them ripping off our agricultural products, uh, we still seem to side with other Anglosphere countries when it's about like, you know, other geopolitical issues, which I think is quite interesting, given that you think we'd have more of a sort of a, an economic vested interest in in China. So is there something else that's more important to the sort of national psyche or the political elites other than just mere money? Yeah, I think I was talking before about the power that America still has uh, around the world. We're obviously still very much part of the American influence. And that's still very meaningful in terms of the access that you have to many goods as, you know, the U.S. shows that it's more than willing to engage in trade wars. America, famously, is probably the worst trading partner to have, just because of how they bully you into into cooperating. So, for us, it's, it's I think more so the political connections. Even though our trade with the United States is not particularly particularly high, all, all of these okay. all these global organizations, all these global organizations, are run out of America. It's still a very very powerful country, the most powerful for a reason. And there's a, there's also the concern that the American sort of weaponization of their dollar with the joining of all these countries to BRICS, if they establish a common currency, 
You know, these are countries with manufacturing abilities that we don't have anymore in New Zealand. Certainly the Western world has industrialized in favor of the service economy, which is a, you know, a bubble. Many commentators mm-hmm. have been pointing at that. These manufacturing companies having a common currency as an alternative to their own bilateral trade agreements where they, they use their own currency. That is a, that's a threat to us because we're a benefactor of the US dollar being a reserve currency in reality. Mm-hmm. I sometimes... And- People will say, oh, we need to get with BRICS. You know, America is going to collapse. The American dollar is going to hyperinflate away. The SWIFT system is going to collapse, whatever. You know, we need to get cozy with BRICS. But I, I mean, I don't see any rush to make any, any rash decisions. And I think a lot of these things are actually more robust than they look. But you, you see some real risks there for us. I, I don't see it as an immediate risk, although there's certainly the tendency towards yeah, pushing towards alternatives to the US dollar. I mean, this is one of the reasons Gaddafi got to- toppled, right? Is he was willing to trade oil for gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it like he was willing to trade goods for oil, something around that, mm-hmm. but essentially to um, circumvent u- the use of the US dollar. And of course, if other countries were to follow suit, I mean, people don't realize what the US dollar represents. It represents the extraction of purchasing power from other countries in order to fuel the American just their insane deficits, essentially. You know, the yeah, reason not, people can buy these things on their credit card is because of the US dollar. Yeah, no other country in the world has a, a $33 trillion debt, nor would it be possible. No. Uh, only America can do it, and they can still survive because of the, the US dollar. And as uh, it's sometimes pointed out, you know, the US dollar, what's the US dollar backed by? We'll say, well, the US dollar is just paper. It's not backed by anything. Well, the the US dollar is backed by American warships and American yeah. fighter jets. Yeah. yeah, 12 nuclear aircraft carriers <laughs> that can be projected around the world. <laughs> now, a few years ago, and it has been quite a few years, Winston Peters argued for a free trade deal with Russia. That's obviously fallen much by the wayside. Uh, such an idea couldn't even be resurrected today. But say after this this interview, the negotiations open up again between Russia and Ukraine in, in the near future and there's some kind of peace deal. Uh, do we see a de-escalation or do we see an acceleration of the current situation? You know, is, there, is, is someone actually going to, to back down? Is it a game of chicken? Is someone going to blink first? Well, in well, terms of forming a trade deal with Russia... In terms of, for instance, if they were to renormalize, uh, if there was to be a peace deal, then would there be things like, you know, it would become after a few years, it would become palatable to talk about trade with Russia and so on. Or or is this split going to accelerate? Do relations normalize or do they they split irrevocably? Do they won't? nothing, Nothing can be done to put this going right back to the beginning where I was referring to Putin's two hemispheres of the brain being split, you know, do they come back together? Do we get a, a, a bipolar world that gets along, or is it a, uh, a permanently split world where we are stuck on either side? It will be irrevocable if Russia wins and beats Ukraine mm-hmm. and gets terms that are favorable to them. If Russia loses, it will probably be split up, which I think mm-hmm. has been the ultimate goal from the West. They wanted to split it up and, uh, after the fall of uh, 91. And they still have designs on doing that. And that probably means that they'd be more open. Whatever's left of Russia would be rather open to um, any form of trade deal because it would be essentially a vassal of the United States. Mm-hmm. And Kaiden, what do you see? Any, you know, we're stuck with the United States or is something, you know, is something else in our future possible? 
Well, it's all dependent on what regime will be in place in the United States after the war concludes. Um, if it's a, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't promise anything, but for say Trump, there might be, it might be a bit more amicable towards lowering trade barriers with Russia. But on the other hand, the election there could be fortified. Something could happen. And you see it continue. You see the uh, the war in Ukraine, or you see our sort of cold war that's brewing escalate, and relations continue to break down. More uh, embargoes in place, uh, more tariffs. So, uh, I mean, I I won't I won't bet on anything there. All right. And do either of you see New Zealand picking up a more independent path, trying to? Some people have argued for a much more independent New Zealand foreign policy. Personally, I don't see it. I, I think we are we are the West. We are yep. we are with America, mm-hmm. however it goes. But yeah, some members of the audience might be interested in in some thoughts on whether it would be possible for or some you know, for for New Zealand to go take a different path. Well, and um, as long as our elites are. Uh pro-Western, um, as long as our political establishment is pro-West, signed up with the United Nations and different uh, American-led you know, led organizations, international organizations, we're, we're going to stick with them, even if that's to our detriment in the long term. I think if New Zealand would pursue its own more independent policy, yeah, we might have a, we might have a brighter future, but that's not something that's being pursued right now. It's kind of off the table. Yeah, the last time we tried to adopt a different foreign policy, well, not foreign policy, but different policy, was the uh, the the nuclear ships fiasco, and we got cut out of a lot of deals from the United States. So it's been a severe lesson for us, and we've been backtracking that faux pas ever since the 1980s. And it's the liberalism will just march on, the Western hegemony will just march on, and uh, we'll consume more, get lots of cheap goods. That's about some of it. Yeah, and, and um, on, on this subject of trade, I think the last point that I would like to make with regards to China is that China has actually shown itself to be fairly reluctant to make you know losses at the expense of, of Russia. They're friends, but in, only in terms of what China gets out of it. As long as it's still a good deal for China, they will maintain good relations with Russia. They'll maintain good relations with New Zealand and anyone else in between, but if it's something that would jeopardize their trade with New Zealand, they they you know and and other countries here, Australia, the rest of the Pacific, uh, they seem to prize that very highly. Uh, so, I do not see a case where Russia, uh, sorry, where, where China sees you know, more war as being favorable to it at this point. Well, it's never really you know sought war internationally. I mean, there's um, there was a couple of invasions of Vietnam after after the Vietnam War. And obviously, there's um, sort of neo-colonialism through Tibet, but they don't really seem to project it uh, war further out from their own borders. Yeah, their form of uh, of imperialism is mainly economic, which is uh, essentially build dockyards in Africa and expect and put the debt on them. Uh, and and this is a very British form of imperialism. The British did did this with the Suez Canal 150 years ago. 160 mm. years ago, and the Chinese have, have tried to perfect that, and that's how they're projecting power instead of using military power, which is quite quite smart. Yeah, it's a very expensive. cheap way. Yeah, it's expensive to run a military. Yes, <laughs> yes, this is, this is the case. My final point here is about, I guess, the New Zealand connection 
to this because you know we've talked for the better part of an hour about the Ukraine war on the other side of the world about Russia, which is you know Russia's still quite far away from from where we are. Certainly wedged, you know, China is wedged very firmly between Russia and New Zealand. We have no real trade with Russia at the moment, and especially in the wake of the Ukraine war, it's basically decreased. But we have sent a fair bit of money to the Ukraine war. We definitely, New Zealand as a country is very much behind Ukraine in this war. Several of our soldiers have gone over to fight there as volunteers, but they obviously haven't been stopped by the government. They wouldn't face any kind of sanction for doing so. And unfortunately, two of them have been killed in uh, August 2022. Corporal Dominic Abelin was killed in Ukraine. And again, uh, roughly six months, a bit more than six months later, in April uh, 2023, Kane Tetai was also killed in combat. The thing that shocked me, though, was that the New Zealand government refused to pay for you know, bringing their bodies back to New Zealand, basically saying, you went over there to fight some war that was none of our business, even though we're technically supporting one side. And I think that was quite a, a slap in the face to the families of those soldiers who went yeah. there. Yeah. And I mean, whether you're on the Russian side or the Ukrainian side, men going off and of their own volition to fight for a cause, there's something noble about that. And it was an ignoble way to be treated by the New Zealand government for those two men? I believe their families did raise the money privately to have their bodies brought back and, and buried in New Zealand. But yeah, something, something that it has been pointed out how much the Labour Party despised the armed forces in a sense and, and gutted them. Um, I had family members in the army and so on, and, and they, yeah, it was insanely demoralizing for them to be involved in all of the COVID stuff. But on top of that, it was very, yeah, the, the the state that our our army is in is a terrible state. Or certainly, we couldn't fight a war. But even our men in the army who go out to fight a war of their own choosing are basically treated as if they were trash. And uh, just very very sad for me to see to see that because fighting is at least historically we've always viewed fighting as being a, a noble thing for men to pursue, and now it's seen as a, a silly thing. And uh, I think that's it's it's probably not good for us as a civilization. To- well, it's, it's a silly thing if you're uh, in a culture of inwards-looking people. If you're only if your reference is yourself and your narcissistic black mirror universe of staring into cell phones, then you're sure going away somewhere and fighting and being uncomfortable would be a very silly thing to do. But, you know, obviously those men were thought they were fighting for something greater than themselves and they there's something noble about that. Yeah, and I just because I wouldn't go and fight for Global Homo in defending some, you know, who who's defending what in Europe? They're looking at their at their policy, the continent's falling apart, their borders are open, they're burning massive amounts of money. And their cultural decay is 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 not something I would want to fight for. But I can absolutely respect those who do. I can respect those who believe they have something worth fighting for. And I would love to have something worth fighting for. And that's that's really what you want. You want to have a country worth fighting for. You want to have a cause worth fighting for. And absolutely, I uh, want to say that you know we should always respect uh, these men who are willing to fight for us. Yeah, and make Aotearoa great again. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble with the uh, the audience who are going to send their feedback 
let me know what you thought of this uh, small panel of my friends and you know the chat that we've had here. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why I started Right Minds in uh, 2016 was to have these kinds of discussions. Usually we have them less out in the open, like we have just had them on the radio here. That's the kind of thing that is good for young men to have, uh, have somewhere to talk about history, have somewhere to talk about politics, and uh, we love to facilitate that. So thank you for joining me, Kaiden and Origin. Thank you, Diwa, and thank you to the Reality Check Radio listeners. I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, thank you. It's been a privilege. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.